So John gave the last talk of 1998, spoke of the Brahma Viharas, of metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And I have the great honor, I feel, to give the first talk of 1999. And I would like to speak about (coughs) compassion. The Buddha often spoke about a useful way of describing the world, not as the world being good or bad or right or wrong, but simply as suffering and the end of suffering. An essential piece in freeing ourselves from suffering is the cultivation of compassion. A phrase I like, I think it's from Hildegard of Bingen, awakening the heart from its ancient slumber. So I'd like to tell you a little bit about how I found compassion enter my heart quite unexpectedly, how it was that my heart awakened. I grew up in the Presbyterian Church, and I very dutifully went to Sunday school, and I went to church with my parents, and remember reading the Bible stories and looking at the pictures of Christ, and I was really ready to be inspired and Uh, remembered loving the stories about how it was that God spoke to all these people. You know, he spoke to Moses, and he spoke to this person, and he spoke to that person, and I was ready. It was like, hey, me next. And I remember sitting in church and thinking, okay, God, here I am. I'm ready to hear. What do you have to say? And then, you know, really praying that I would be able to have some sort of direct communion with God. I prayed and I prayed and just nothing ever happened. So I got a little discouraged and I went to the minister of our church and um, had a heart-to-heart with him. I think I was in the sixth grade. But I felt like this was an important thing I had to sort out for myself. So I talked to him and I asked him who wrote the Bible. I thought, well, maybe they made all this up, you know. I'm not having these experiences. Why not? So I asked him, and um, he didn't give me a very satisfying answer. I actually don't remember what he said, but more the way he said it, which made me feel like maybe I wasn't going to find what I needed in this particular um, in this particular church. So I left the church, and I my whole kind of spiritual longing went underground for a couple of years. And then I got sent to summer camp. I think by then I was in the 10th grade. And at this summer camp, we were, um, there was a a play going to be performed. And somehow I got chosen to play the the leading role, which was Joan of Arc. And I had never heard of Joan of Arc, but I wanted to do a good job in, you know, in performing in this production. And so I really tried to get into the role with a lot of vigor. And, you know, she was one who talked to God all the time. So I would, you know, try to imagine what that would be like. And I would go out in the woods and commune with God and nature and I really got into it, and I thought, oh, this is possible. This is what I've been looking for. Here was a woman who understood my search. However, her ending is not the happiest one. (laughs) So although she seemed to be on the right track, I also got a sense that, you know, it might be dangerous to pursue that that kind of a search. So then I really went underground for many years and um, went to college and pursued all the usual um, 
explorations of jobs and relationships. And I was actually in graduate school and had left New York City and come to California. I was 33 years old and I was walking down the street in Berkeley one day and literally kind of bumped into a Tibetan Lama. At that point in my life, I had no idea where Tibet was. I had no interest in Buddhism. I wasn't seeking. I thought, you know, California was, from my New York eyes, a little, hmm. Um, so, but I got introduced to uh, this man who was actually um, uh, Tartang Tulku, who, the founder of the Nyingma Institute in Berkeley. And a friend of mine was going to a workshop of his, and he encouraged me to come along with her. So I did. It was a workshop on um, dream yoga. And I didn't understand a word. Um, I had no idea what this teaching was about. I just couldn't imagine what he was talking about. And I also had a hard time um, actually understanding. His English was creative, you know. It was, it was um, not the usual sentence structure. So... <laughs> I had a little bit of a hard time following what was going on, but, and this is the important point, there was a certain moment, I think the second day of this weekend workshop, in which um, somebody asked him a question about compassion. And he turned to her, and suddenly, I don't know how, compassion was in the room. It was, I experienced it as a living force, something that was there, and it entered my heart, and I was stunned. I was just like, wow. I had never known that it could be a living force. I had known it was a word, I had known it was a nice idea, but I had never experienced it in its embodied full kind of transmission form. And it was so touching. It was very um, moving to me. So I went up to him and expressed my interest in, in uh, coming to more of his teachings. And then I went to more of his teachings. And at some point, he was telling us the story of what it was like to leave Tibet at that time, the Chinese had occupied Tibet, and he, with many other Tibetans, had had to flee on foot over the mountains into India, having to leave behind his family, his monastery, his wealth, his friends, only coming with a few essentials. And I had never met a refugee before, and I was, again, very touched by this story. So I went up to him and I said something, you know, like, oh, I'm just so sorry to hear of your plight. And, and he turned to me, and this is another moment, uh, which I will never remember. He said, oh, don't worry, not to worry. And he laughed and kind of carried on gaily, you know, like he was describing a picnic or something <laughs> instead of this terrible experience. He said, not to worry, not so bad. It was okay, it's okay. And it was like he ended up consoling me about this whole situation. So I thought to myself, how is this possible? What is opening here in me? This, it was like a paradigm shift. It didn't fit my usual ideas of how compassion worked, or how it would be that a person who was a refugee could be so open-hearted and carefree and happy and radiant and generous. It just blew my mind. So this is the question I'd like to pose tonight, is how is it possible that people such as this Lama and others are able to keep their hearts open, how is it possible to have compassion in the midst of such suffering in our world? 
our own suffering, and you've been getting a somewhat of a taste of it here on retreat, as well as the enormous suffering that we see when we look at the world around us. How is it possible to develop a compassionate heart? One of the things I would like to um, explore with you is um, how this paradigm shift, because I feel like that is almost what is needed in order to open our hearts, some kind of paradigm shift happens internally. So I'd like to explore with you three ways in which this may work, and this is not a complete list by any means. There may be other ways in which something shifts in us and we open. But these are three ways that um, we will explore together tonight. But first I'd like to um, share a story. One of the things about talking about compassion is it's often talked about in Buddhist circles, and so we may get the idea that it's kind of a Buddhist thing, like, you know, Buddhists have some sort of direct... It's more of a thing that happens when you're a Buddhist. But actually, I don't want to create that impression at all. Compassion does not come with any credentials, Buddhist or otherwise, and that it is often found in unexpected places among totally ordinary people who are faced with very extraordinary challenges. And so I'd like to share with you one such story And because it has many of the elements in it, which I'd like to touch on tonight, about how it is that something can open in us. This was in the newspaper several years ago. This is about a woman named Janice Smith. Smith was celebrating the fact that a woman named Linda Michaels can still go to the corner for a double scoop of ice cream. And Smith was relieved that Michaels will have the chance to teach English literature to children if she wants to, and that Michaels can breathe fresh air and come and go as she pleases. Michaels is a 26-year-old woman who drank a bottle of wine, got in her Hyundai, barreled through the barriers on Ocean View Boulevard in Pacific Grove, and hit Smith. Smith, then 38, was walking on the recreation trail near Lover's Point. She was running about half an hour late that late August day. She never saw the car coming. Smith's hip was fractured in five places, her lung punctured, the middle finger on her left hand severed, her ribs cracked, her right leg cut. She had to have a tent over her bed to hold up the covers because she couldn't take the weight of them on her hips and legs. Three months later, she can't talk about the pain without breaking down. I didn't know our psyches could endure so much, she said, and not just die from it. But it isn't just the hurt that makes her sob. It's thinking about what could have been and what now might be. My words could never pay proper homage to her tears. You must listen to Smith's own explanation for why, With the aid of a walker, she maneuvered through Judge Price's courtroom last Tuesday and begged him not to send Michaels to prison. Instead, she asked only that Michaels make a restitution in the form of $350 a month to help Smith recover financially. Listen carefully. You might never hear compassion like this again. Smith said, I really believe hatred and anger wouldn't fix anybody, said Smith, a massage therapist who now has no income but all the same bills. Somebody had to do something right here. It had to be fair, it had to be just, and it had to be good. 
She wanted Michaels to teach English literature. If she had gone to prison, they wouldn't have let a convicted felon work with children. Her life would have been ruined. Now she'll be able to do the things she's dreamt of and has studied for. Both of us live through this. Every day I go to bed in pain, I wake up in pain. But I don't want to quit. I have to keep going, and she has to keep going. There was no conflict in my heart when I made this decision. Somebody had to save these two lives. Funny. Smith used to think she got short-changed in this life, that she hadn't been given her own special gift. She couldn't paint, she couldn't sing, she couldn't dance, she couldn't even cook. People always told her, though, that she had a loving heart, a kind heart. They had no idea. How is this possible? What causes or conditions can we see in this story and might we see in other situations which might have something to do with the awakening of our hearts, with the awakening of compassion. The first of these is, I feel, the exploration of our vulnerability. And sometimes it is suffering which makes us most vulnerable. There was a time in my life when I'd like to share with you about my uncle. My uncle um, was a, uh, a man who traveled a lot, who worked in government, who wrote books, who walked uh, many places in the world. He was a great walker. When he was 81, he had a stroke, and he was paralyzed. He could still talk, but he couldn't walk. My own father had died when I was young, so he had been somewhat like a father to me. So after he had his stroke, I went to visit him. I went to visit him at his summer home, which was up in the Cascade Mountains. And this was the first time I had seen him since he'd had his stroke. It had been about a month, I believe. So I came into the house and went into his bedroom and to see someone whom you have known as so active, so um, healthy, so vital, to see them suddenly immobile. I was shocked. I saw, it was like, I, I just saw this person in a, it was a paradigm shift. It was like, I didn't know this person. I had to take in a whole new way of being with, with this person who I had spent so much time with. We used to go backpacking and traveling, and, and there he was, totally immobile in bed. It was very awkward because I was so shocked. His son was there, my cousin, and over the next few days um, in hanging out with him, it got easier. One day, I think what broke the ice was one day we um, put him in his wheelchair, my cousin and I. We decided to take him out into the meadow because one of the things that happens when people have strokes is they don't get outside very much, and he had been such an outdoorsman we thought we should take him outside. So we put him in his wheelchair and wheeled him out into the middle of this meadow, which was ringed by some very lovely hills and mountains. And it was a beautiful day. And we were out there feeling kind of awkward, sort of awkward to wheel a wheelchair through a a bumpy meadow. And at one point, my cousin lost control of the wheelchair, and my uncle, much to our horror, just sort of (laughs) fell out of the wheelchair. 
into the meadow. It's like your worst nightmare. You just think, oh my God, you know, this is horrible. And we were, so we were like apologizing to him and, you know, struggling to get him back into the wheelchair. But somehow we just kept falling down ourselves until finally what happened is that all three of us are lying in the meadow. <laughs> And suddenly something happened. It was like we all relaxed and we just started laughing. Because it was, there was this sort of, it was a little bit awkward, but there was also this kind of humor that entered. And there was this kind of connection and this kind of appreciation of the awkwardness of the situation. And we all just kind of lay there looking up at the sky. And I remember my uncle just saying, it's so beautiful here. <laughs> and there we were together at last. You know, it was just one of those moments that cuts through stroke, tragedy, uh, niece, cousin. You know, it just cut through everything. And there we suddenly were together. So in our vulnerability, something new has the opportunity to enter. Certainly, we feel vulnerable as we sit, as we experience emotions very directly. We see them with wisdom. We see what they are made out of. We see that they are thoughts, that they are feelings, that they're story, they're sensations. And we begin to recognize them and develop a way of being mindful and present with them. But still sometimes we feel lost, we feel gripped by our resistance to them. And so this may be a time to bring in a reflection that comes from this understanding of compassion. We may understand that what's needed is not attacking it with mindfulness, but a softening, an allowing, a willingness to be with. As John mentioned the other night, as came up in Gil's talk, this this willingness to be with suffering, the root of passion, the willingness to suffer, compassion, to be there, to join it, to be with it. And in doing that, something begins to transform in us and also in our relationship to others' pain. When we find that way of softening and opening to our own pain, it makes it more likely that we can be soft and open with others' pain. It's like we know how to join them. We sense what they need because we have done that with ourselves. So we find this place in ourselves of softness, of allowing. And that's, I think, one of the major paradigm shifts, you could say, of meditation practice. There's a man named Mark Epstein um, who writes wonderful books about Buddhism and psychotherapy. And in one of his books, he, he says this, When plagued with a sense of unworthiness, it is easy to feel deficient and to see the love of another person as the only possible solution to one's plight. Meditation tends to work against this assumption of deficiency by restoring the capacity for love from the inside. It challenges the common assumption of our culture about where love comes from. In the Buddhist view, love is already present. We are not as separate as we think we are. Love is our natural state. We just have to learn to permit it. It is our nature to love. And in meditation, we're coming back 
to that essential contact with our very nature. It allows us to be with all that is difficult. So compassion enters when we are willing to be vulnerable, when when we are willing to open in that way. It seems that compassion enters also when we allow change. Allowing change is another very big part of what we are doing here. We're discovering the ceaseless flow of change which is our life. We discover that to be alive is to be changing. We may look at our lives and see how much we resist change, how much we try to make our lives safe and comfortable through repetition, through routine, through habits, which give us a sense of who we are and how to be comfortable, what Gandhi called blessed monotony. (laughs) The Buddha talked about the eight worldly dharmas, uh, ways in which most people experience life through pleasure and pain, through success and failure, through gain and loss, and through pride and shame that we cycle through these over and over again. And of course, we love it when it's pleasant and we're successful and we're winning and when we feel pride, we feel good about what's happening. And we hate it when pleasure turns to pain. We hate it when we feel we have failed or when we're losing or when we're caught by shame. We resist this natural cycling of things. We want it to stay always on the positive side. And so practice, once again, really challenges our notions about what is important. Is this what life is about? To always win, to always succeed, to feel really good all the time about ourselves in a prideful way? Who is winning? Who is succeeding? Who is losing? Who is gaining? Here's a little story that's called, Who Won? And it's about the um, Special Olympics track and field meet. One participant in this was a little boy named Kim Peek, a brain-damaged, severely handicapped boy racing in the 50-yard dash. Kim was racing against two other athletes with cerebral palsy. They were in wheelchairs. Kim was the lone runner. As the gun sounded, Kim moved quickly ahead of the other two. 20 yards ahead and 10 yards from the finish line, He turned to see how the others were coming. The girl had turned her wheelchair around and was stuck against the wall. The other boy was pushing his wheelchair backward with his feet. Kim stopped, went back, and pushed the little girl across the finish line. The boy in the wheelchair going backward won the race. (laughs) The girl took second. Kim lost. Or did he? The crowd that gave Kim a standing ovation didn't think so. What are we trying to do in our lives? What opens us perhaps is not winning, perhaps failing. In fact, Rumi has a poem about the importance of failing. God fixes a passionate desire in you and then disappoints you. God does that a hundred times. That's minimum. (laughs) 
But sometimes your plans work out. You feel fulfilled and in control. That's because if you were always failing, you might give up. (laughs) It is by failures that lovers stay aware of how they're loved. Failure is the key to the kingdom within. So compassion when we are vulnerable, compassion when we are willing to accept the inevitable changes that life brings us. The third territory that we explore in practice in which compassion begins to be felt is when we are willing to enter the unknown, when we are willing not to know all the answers, but actually are more willing to live with the questions, living with inquiry, living with that kind of wonder and questioning and willingness to explore what we don't know. This can also bring a very profound paradigm shift. There's a man named Bernie Glassman. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He's a Zen teacher in New York. And he has a book called Bearing Witness, which I've been reading and feeling quite inspired by. But one of the things he does is He's a social activist, and he likes to bring people into um, situations where they are very challenged. And so he does retreats on the streets of New York City. He will bring a group of people into the street to live for a week as homeless people live. It's important to say that they're not masquerading as homeless people because the people he brings are, you know, people like us, middle class, values, etc. But they are there to do a retreat, to discover what can only be discovered in the same way that you come on retreat here, but in a situation in which there's, you know, no soft cushions, there's no regular meals, there's no warm place to sleep at night, there's no uh, a surety of where you're going to get your next meal. There's a lot of unknown. So one of the things that he um, says about this experience I really liked, and that is about when we open ourselves to the unknown, we discover things that we couldn't have known before. And one of the things that people discover on these retreats that he does in New York City is this. People who come on retreats, whether they're corporate executives or busy professionals, often say they feel freer on the streets than they've felt for years. Ironically, back home and in the office, people think they're crazy. But on the streets, with no money or credit cards in their pockets, just the clothes on their backs, they're actually happy. In fact, it's the very lack that scares their friends that gives them this taste of simplicity, freedom, and even joy. For what they've also discovered is that out on the streets, they have everything they need. Quite a radical paradigm shift, wouldn't you say? We do a a bit of this on retreat. I know for me, um, going on a retreat back in the late 70s to a meditation center, and it was a little more austere then. We just had like foam mats on a floor in an empty room, and the meals were about the same, but there was just this simplicity of life that I had never tasted before that was a real revelation. It was a bit of a paradigm shift where I saw that happiness was not dependent on having abundant material objects and abundant stimulation throughout the day, that happiness was coming from a whole different place inside. 
So life gives us, this is only one way of exploring the unknown, clearly a very radical way to go live on the street is like probably one of the more challenging ways of exploring the unknown. And I'm not saying this is what we need to do, but life gives us many, many opportunities to go into the unknown. And it's an invitation. It's an invitation worth taking because so much learning occurs, so much needs to open in us to be able to um, discover things about ourselves that we never knew before. It cracks through our ignorance in some ways. There are many ways of going into the unknown. Certainly um, having a child, or big going into the unknown, moving to a new location, suddenly getting a medical diagnosis, having an accident, or some sort of traumatic experience, getting a divorce, getting into a relationship. All of these experiences that are common take us into an unknown place and shift our world in some essential ways. And I feel that going into the unknown is a lot about exploring our ignorance, our fear and our ignorance. In Dharma language, ignorance is not, um, it's not a word that is judgmental. And we can hear it that way, like it sounds like a bad thing to be. To be ignorant sounds like you're criticizing somebody or, or um, saying you know, a negative thing. It's not meant to be held that way. Rather, ignorance is simply a kind of confusion. It's a kind of bewilderment that we as human beings, it seems, come in with or have just by nature of, be, of being human. It's a kind of blindness where we just don't see something that is perhaps right in front of us. I like to think of ignorance um, kind of like one of those stereograms. Do you know those? They were really popular a few years ago, and I think they're still around. Those They came in the form of cards or books. They're like you open this this book, and there's just like dots, lots and lots of dots, and you look and you think, well, dots, yeah, that's lots of dots. But if you look at it in just kind of the right, relaxed, not too close, not too far (laughs) way, suddenly an image will appear, a three-dimensional image. Have you had that experience? And you know how it is when the image comes out, it's like, oh, oh my God, it's there. It's so obvious. And somehow once you've seen it there, you can never not see it again. Well, ignorance is kind of like that. It's like when we, once we see through what was not seen before, it seems so obvious. And we wonder why we didn't see it before. So ignorance is not meant as a derogatory statement, but rather as just our our blindness, if you will. One um, Korean monk put it this way about our ignorance. I like this story. This was a Korean monk Um, who worked for many years with teenagers who were classified as mentally retarded. Together they built a temple in Korea, and he ordained them all as Buddhist monks. People thought he was crazy. What did it mean to ordain young people who were mentally retarded? What was he giving them? He replied that he was giving them nothing for there was nothing they needed to be given. They were all Buddhas, all enlightened beings. And then he added, in the Buddha's eyes, we are all retarded. (laughs) 
So we live with this incredible paradox of being both ignorant, simply blind, and at the same time we are already Buddhas, already enlightened. This is important to remember when we are exploring our ignorance because we can feel really stupid sometimes. One of the ways I have felt really stupid this year was in a class that some of us here at Spirit Rock have been taking. Um, It's a class on, um, the title of it is Untraining White Middle Class Liberal Racism. Now, I don't even know how you feel when you hear those words, but it kind of perhaps jars you. Because white middle class liberals, yeah, that's right. We can identify with that. But when you add racism, it, it's like, no, we don't do that. We're, we're good people, we, etc. So even the the idea of looking at racism in this way is somewhat, you get the idea it's a paradigm shift, that it's not about being bad people, or Ku Klux Klan, or, you know, it's about looking at our ignorance on this particular subject. It's about looking at things that I have never looked at before. It's about looking at ways in which I have assumed a kind of, by by the fact of being white, middle-class, liberal, looking at ways in which I have assumed a privilege in this world, certain assumptions, certain beliefs, which, if unexamined, tend to perpetuate racism. It's been a very humbling experience, very challenging, very illuminating, and very humbling. It has definitely, um, I think for all of us who've done this class, taken us into another relationship to the whole subject of race and class. And I am grateful for that, but I'm just saying that it hasn't been comfortable and it hasn't been easy. So this is the exploration of the unknown, going into places that aren't familiar, and it happens in many ways. I'd like to speak um, a little bit about how it happens in our practice as we sit, as we walk. And it has to do, actually, with mindfulness itself and how it is that we learn what it means to be in a mindful relationship with our experience. The process of learning to be mindful changes over time. When we first come to practice, we are often here with some self-interest. I mean, it's quite natural to come with some idea about something we want from the experience. And so we tend to be mindful with a kind of self-interest. We notice what we like, what we want more of. We notice what we don't like, what we want less of. We notice our opinions about everything, about the meditation, about the teachers, about the retreat center, and and the whole experience. Or we notice based on our conditioning so that we um, see what fits our previous experience and what doesn't seem to fit. And we tend to discount what doesn't fit something that we already know. Now over time, as we encourage in the instructions to begin to look at this preference-making mind, something begins to shift in our mindfulness. And we move into a stage where we are 
dropping a little bit more into another way of being where we are not pursuing our preferences so much, but where there's still a certain amount of self-consciousness, where we are still trying or believing that we must do something, that we have this technique and we're going to do it until we get it right. And so questions about doing it right or doing it wrong or judging ourselves or comparing ourselves, all that tends to come up for a while in practice. And then as we settle in more, something else begins to happen. And it happens as we cultivate this quality of focus and sustained attention, and also as we discover right effort. What kind of effort does it really take to be present with something? We learn how to relax and be alert at the same time until we find a kind of very easy, allowing, and yet very precise attentiveness that we are not doing, but rather is functioning quite effortlessly, moment to moment in our experience. We discover that when we are not wanting anything, that we actually can observe more precisely. We learn how to be more intimate with our moment-to-moment experience. We learn how to join with pain or with the breath or with a sound and maintain awareness at the same time. We learn how to be with things in a very moment-to-moment intimate way and yet at the same time to be very alert and attentive and precise. We learn exactly how to join with this ceaseless flow of our experiencing. This ceaseless flow is the going into the unknown. When we surrender to that ceaseless flow, we are surrendering to a process about which we do not know. We do not know what is going to arise, how it's going to arise, when it's going to arise. We just know that we are learning to trust a kind of surrender to a process. We learn actually that we cannot hold on, nor can we grasp that it is basically ungraspable. There's a little poem that expresses this understanding of practice. Only two lines. I forget who the poet is, but some of you will recognize it. It's, we sit together, the mountain and I, until only the mountain remains. Could we say in the same way, We sit together, the breath and I, until only the breath remains, until only the pain remains, or until only the sound remains, or until only thinking remains. When we are joined with, in that moment-to-moment way, the me, that insists on its world being a certain way, is surrendered. And in that space, in that space of the unknown, we are connecting inside with this love, with this compassion. So I've talked about three ways in which we discover compassion. Through our vulnerability, through our acceptance of change, and through our willingness to enter the unknown. When we're not doing, when we're not willing to go into these places, we could say these are all forms of resistance, of clinging to an idea of self.
In the Buddhist tradition, compassion and wisdom are seen as sometimes likened to the two wings of a bird, that they are both, well, they're inseparable. A bird has two wings, that's it. You can't have a bird with one wing, or you won't have a bird that flies if you only have one wing. So there's some sort of inseparability here. There's also some sort of way in which perhaps they are the same. So that there's this sense when we are practicing of both being cultivated. It's just that at different times, different aspects may seem more in the foreground. The Buddha said, I can find it. One who clings to emptiness and neglects compassion will not reach the highest awakening. And one who practices only compassion will not gain release from suffering. Somehow these are both needed, this wisdom and this compassion. I think I'd like to close with an expression of compassion that comes from Shantideva, which is just very inspiring and um, which really reminds us perhaps deeply of why it is we are doing this practice. He says, as no one desires the slightest suffering nor ever has enough of happiness, there is no difference between myself and others. So let me make others joyfully happy. May those feeble with cold find warmth, and may those oppressed with heat be cooled by the boundless waters that pour forth from the great clouds of the bodhisattvas. May the rains of lava, blazing stones, and weapons from now on become a rain of flowers. And may all battling with weapons from now on be a playful exchange of flowers. May the naked find clothing, the hungry find food. May the thirsty find water and delicious drinks. May the frightened cease to be afraid and those bound be freed. May the powerless find power. May people think of benefiting one another. For as long as space endures, and for as long as living beings remain, until then may I too abide to dispel the misery of the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.